Good morning, church. It's good to gather and be encouraged by song and through the fellowship and through the word. We're going to be concluding our series, Live Sent, today. And I just praise God for what a fruitful time it's been in God's word. I've heard from many of you in various circles that I'm a part of, of how God has been encouraging you and challenging you and strengthening you in your efforts to engage our cities with with the gospel. And today we're going to expand our vision to see beyond Birmingham what God wants to do through us as a church. And so to that end, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. So you can make your way there. Colossians chapter 1. Some vantage points change what you value in life and in death. It's like before you saw life from that vantage point, you saw it in a certain way, and all of the sudden, when your eyes were open to a different way of seeing things, everything got reordered. It was like a revolution happened. May my mind think of a revolution that happened in the history of our world and our understanding of the world back in the 1500s when a guy named Nicholas Copernicus proposed a theory that the earth was not in the center of the solar system, but that the sun was and how he threw the furniture around. And ever since then, we have seen the world differently. A revolution happened. That's why it's called a Copernican revolution. We grew small, right? And the, the solar system all of a sudden became grand. Now that's kind of a life-altering vantage point through which we understand our place in the solar system. But Colossians 1 has a similar kind of revolutionary potential in each of our lives. Once you see it, you can't see life from any other vantage point. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And we see everything by it. And it's a vantage point that ironically makes us so small, but at the same time expands our vision for what God could use us to do in the world so grand. Paul was himself rocked by this very vision he explains in Colossians chapter one. Think about this. Paul went before he believed in Jesus Christ. He went from persecuting the church, actively hindering the church's mission and witness to writing this verse, which is the pivot verse in our text today in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And he'll go on to say that he's rejoicing in his sufferings for the sake of the church. So Paul went from one who was inflicting suffering to gladly enduring suffering for the sake of the church. What happened? Colossians 1 happened. This vantage point changes what you value in life and in death. And so as I read, we're going to begin in this early hymn from the early church in Colossians 1.15 and read through 2.3. Hang on, as this is a, a grand vision of all that God is up to in the world through his son, Jesus Christ. He is the son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now that's what God's doing cosmically out there through the person and worth of Jesus Christ. Look how he applies that to these believers at Colossae and to those who are believers among us today. Once you were alienated, alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for you and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, agonizing for you, for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the first discovery in this passage that expands our vision of what God could use us to do to impact the nations is found in 115 through 23. And Paul transitions from praying to praising and extolling the wonders of this Christ. And his first meditation is number one there on your outline, God's delight in Jesus overflows to all. God's delight in Jesus overflows to all. These verses recount one by one, the supremacy, the authority, the greatness, everything you can imagine about the person of Jesus Christ. It starts with him as the image of the invisible God, meaning he both reveals God and is God among us. He is before all things, in him all things hold together, and he is the reason all things exist. That's why I put on your outline there, the next bullet is his preeminence, his preeminence. This hymn takes us to the vantage point that changes everything. All things flow from him. He is the glue that holds all things together and he's the goal of all things and where they are headed. He's the source, the sustainer, the end. All things unseen, all things seen. The universe as you know it hinges and operates according to the design and purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the time in which we live, the now where we know of, which we know of as human history operates according to his design and by his sustaining power. But he's also the new beginning of a new story of what is to come. That's what he, he says there, that the work of new has become a reality because he's the firstborn from the dead. You see the repeat, repeating story of our time is, and he died, and she died, and he died. You read it all through the Old Testament. 
But then all of a sudden that tune was interrupted and a new story is unleashed for the world to behold. Jesus is the head of that old story. Jesus is the head of that new story and he's the center of it all. He's the pivot point of redemptive history. When he was raised from the dead, the church was unleashed on the world and he will be there at its consummation and it will serve his glory. He's the sun in the solar system of all that God's up to in the world. And verse 19 shows why everything centers on Jesus. Look at that with me. For God was pleased to have not just his fullness, not just some of his fullness, but all his fullness dwell in him. Now stay with me for one second because we're going to go to the deep end here. The Bible reveals God is one, yet inside that oneness is three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. It's what we call the Trinity. We worship one God and within that oneness are three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Now the Father has been the Father from eternity past and the Son has been the Son from eternity past. But just like any father, life exudes from him and there's never been a time when that life didn't find a perfect expression in his son. From the very beginning of time, whenever that was, and there was no beginning in God's heart, uh, in eternity past, God's love was overflowing in the delight of his son. A dad glad in his son, a son glad in his dad, in a universe now that we're seeing in Colossians 1 that is on the receiving end of all this bounty and overflowing love. God's delight is to share his son's greatness with every nook and cranny of creation. Satan has done a great job at painting God as his favorite word as no. Has he not? That's what he did in Eve's mind. But Colossians 1 is, is helping you get acquainted with reality that God's number one word is yes, Jesus, do it, do creation, sustain creation, be the goal of creation. You are my prized possession. You are my son. God's loving to share that glory with the creation that his son has birthed and spawned. So much of our lives is bent on us, is it not? I don't know if you know about the NBA player, James Harden, but he recently finally landed on an NBA team, a new team a few weeks ago. And he was asked how he was going to gel with his new teammates. And this is what he said. He said, I'm really not a system player. I am a system. Now, that's pretty bold, right? I'm a basketball coach right now at, over at Evangel Christian in Alabaster. And if any of one of my players says he's the system, that system's going to find its way to the bench, right? Uh, Maybe that's why Harden couldn't land a team. But in reality, when we live like everything centers on us, aren't we saying the same thing that we're the system? And Colossians 1 effectively right-sizes us. Welcome to the system of the world as it really is. And it's all about Jesus. This changes everything. You exist and I exist. The church exists to magnify this Christ because that's God's very heart for all of humanity and all of the story of which we are a part. This changes the way we talk. It changes the way we pray. It changes the way we work. It changes the way we pay taxes. It changes the way we suffer. It changes the way we neighbor. It changes everything about us. It's a revolution to discover the vantage point of life from Colossians chapter one. 
Think about Paul in this passage. Twice he's going to label himself a servant, one of the gospel and the other of the church. You see how this vision of Christ made him small. He's just here to serve and steward the lot that God had given him as a pioneer missionary to bring the gospel to those who had not yet heard it. So his perspective on himself decreased. His ambitions increased as he saw the world as the target of God's mercy. Even his perspective on his pain was recalibrated and recategorized. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Life wasn't about Paul. And in that moment, he found freedom because life was all about Christ. Something revolutionary, friends, occurs. I just want to speak to you teenagers, especially when the the logic of your life becomes, look at him, not look at me. Something so categorically different enters your frame of reference that all of a sudden a freedom is found in his shadows. You were never made to be the spotlight. Not any one of us in this room was ever made to be the spotlight. And welcome to the glorious freedom of the shadows of Jesus Christ being first in everything. And Brick Hills, we gravitate back toward the center, right? Isn't it so easy to wake up every day and your prayer center on you and your ambition center on you and your whole life revolves around you? So Brook Hills, I ask you, has the Copernican Colossians 1 type revolution happened for you? This vantage point on life changes what we value in life and in death. This discovery changes everything. Our whole existence revolves around him. Once you see him in this glory, you can't unsee him in this place, which means you'd rather die than disown him. You'd rather die than disobey him. He's that valuable. Secondly, let's look at his prize there on your outline, his preeminence and his prize. Look at the next phrase in verse 20. It started back in 19, for God was pleased, but if you carry it through, it says in verse 20, through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So this is peace at the cosmic level, heaven and earth reuniting. Now we don't see that playing out in our time yet. Just watch the news and you'll see that there's conflict everywhere. There's still a hostility toward God, a hostility toward man playing out on our planet. But Paul then applies that that story of reconciliation and how it's caught these believers up in modern day Turkey back when they lived in Colossae. It has caught them up in Jesus' reconciling work. So look in verse 21. This is what they once were. They once participated in the rivalry, the hostility, the rebellion. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So that's the state of the human race outside of Christ. He reminds us to freshen us up to the glory of the wonder of the reconciling work of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're not a Christian here this morning, we're so glad you're here. The Bible is honest with you like you would want a doctor to be honest with you about the state of your diagnosis, even if it was grim. You see, our state before God is is not one of peace unless Jesus enters the fray and, and reconciles us to him. 
Our state before God is we don't like him to be the center. So we push against that. We are rivals with that vision of life. And so we want ourselves to be the center and that's hostile toward him. But it is God's pleasure, it says in this text, to honor the achievement of his son for you to have peace between yourself and God by the reconciling blood of his son that he shed at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what's amazing. That's exactly what's happened to everyone who's in Christ today and has become a Christian. We were running in our rebellion. We were running like we were the center of things to our own destruction. And he stopped us dead in our tracks. And we beheld the wonder and the worth of what Jesus did on that cross. And notice, friends, if you're a Christian here, it's not that that God just wanted to end the hostility between us and himself through Jesus and, and just shake hands and then we never see each other again. Jesus went to the cross in verse 22 with a goal in mind, not just to reconcile you, but he had a reward in view. And that reward was to enjoy a rich, full relationship with you. He, desi- he died to present you to himself, holy, faultless, and blameless. All the alienation closed, all the coldness gone. Every possible reason to shun you has been stripped of its isolating force. And he went all the way to the cross to welcome you all the way into his embrace. It is amazing what he accomplished there. Friends, we become so, we're professional shame inflictors on ourselves, are we not? We, we love to disqualify ourselves. We can find every excuse in the book of why Jesus should still remain cold toward us. It's like if you've ever seen the Barbie movie or heard the song, I actually watched that with my three teenage boys this past week and daughter, odd experience. But, um, but Ken uh, is just a myriad of Kens and he can never win Barbie's affection. And so his song starts like this, because I'm just Ken. Anywhere else I'd be a 10, Right? We think we, we never can measure up and it's up to us to, to win Jesus' approval. But Jesus died to close the gap of the relationship between us and to make us enjoy the relationship that he won for us. He didn't die, friends, to be disappointed with the state of your relationship with him. He died to make you holy and faultless and blameless before him like a bride adorned for her husband, made ready by his work for her. Now, realizing this about God's delight to share his joy over his son to all the world changes the fuel that's pumping through our veins to push us out in mission and love to the world. Tim Keller says it it rescues us from all the dirty energy that's self-centered in its focus that can fuel us toward mission and, and in some ways toward love, like guilt and fear and shame and even pride. Those things can drive you for a season toward mission, but when you realize that that the preeminence of Jesus and the prize of Jesus is pulsing through the Father's veins and he wants to get that all out to the world. That changes the fuel, right? We're not, we're not out in front pulling God in our prayers with our two by two, right? Our two spheres and our two names that we've been praying for. That's not what we're doing. He's, we're, our prayers are actually expressing this exuding brimming over heart of God and his love for his son. It's his delight to honor the achievement of his son by reconciling sinners to himself. Our mission is never out in front. Our mission is just an expression of his love. Now think about the view from the Vulcan, right? Downtown. Don't think about the view of the Vulcan because then you'll see something in your head. Um, 
Think about the view from the Vulcan. Vulcan. Birmingham, right, and beyond just sprawls out before you. And God in this text is saying first place, Jesus, over all of Birmingham. I have it all. And that's what we want to be about as a church, as we witness to our neighbors, as we witness to our coworkers. First place, the shadows are so freeing, Birmingham. Get in on this work, right? Yes, you can get in. You can be right with God. That's what we're saying to Birmingham. But Birmingham, friends, is much too small for a prize this grand. All the world is where Paul turns because the wealth of what God accomplished on the cross finds expression in a myriad of ways among a multitude of people. And that was his intended target and his intended design. What if to the two spheres and the two names we added two unreached, unengaged people groups like the Zazas of Southeastern Turkey or the Malay of Malaysia or the Moroccans of, of North Africa? What if we added two unreached, unengaged people groups as an expression of our desire, not for just the, the gospel to go to Birmingham, but for all the world to get on, on the accolades of King Jesus. That's the glory of our mission. Thomas Chalmers said there on your outline, those to whom Christ is precious will long that others should taste of that preciousness. And first among them who longs is God the Father. His heart is just overflowing with joy over what his son has done. Then applying to us, those who have buried all their anxieties and all their terrors in the sufficiency of the atonement will long that the knowledge of a remedy so effectual should be carried around the globe. Yes, come on in Birmingham. And yes, come on in all nations. Let's go. God has done it. God loves to get people in on the worth and work of his son. So that brings us to the second desire in this passage. So God's delight in his son is brimming over. And now God's desire to make known Jesus' worth to all there on your outline. This was the pivot point of Paul's life. This was the pure, pure fuel just forging a path ahead into pioneer areas for the gospel. Verse 27, God wanted, God desired to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the target of the treasure. It's among all the nations, but the treasure, just look at it, it's glorious wealth. It's not just wealth. He doesn't just save you according to the measure of your need. He saves you according to the measure of his grace, his glorious grace. It's rare in its quality. It's super abundant in its quantity. You can never exhaust it. You can never plummet the depths of all that he is for us in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the best gift God could give us. The pinnacle expression of all that he is for us in his son, Jesus Christ. His, this is the best gift we could ever even imagine. Christ among you world, this is the hope of glory. There is nothing more God could give us because Jesus is the exact pinnacle expression of everything we both need and we would ever desire once our desires are righted. This is why we sing it is well with our soul in every season of soul, no matter how 
much suffering we are enduring, we have Christ. Nothing better, nothing else. And I love how Paul says it. God desired to make known the glorious wealth of this mystery. So what does Paul say in verse 28? Him we proclaim. This is what God desired to do. So I'm getting in line and we're just giving the world the goods. We could do a lot of good for humanitarian causes in the world church. And let's do a lot of good for those, those humanitarian causes. I mean, this morning I bought Dunkin' Donuts coffee and was asked if I'd like to donut $1 to their cancer fund. And I said, yes, because we should be all about ending cancer for the world, right? Justice for the poor, relief for the vulnerable, yes. But this is the person without whom none of that good does any ultimate good. We might alter the, the nation's earthly story, but we won't change their journey of what would happen if they tried to get to glory without the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only hope of eternal glory. Notice the target of the knowledge is among all the nations. So my family, we went finally to the Majestic Caverns. We've lived here five years now and uh, they used to be known as the DeSoto Caverns, but we finally went there this past July. And it was an amazing experience. If you've never been, they take you really underneath the ground through this, you enter this, this cave and it is deep and you're going down this windy path and you end up in this kind of dimly lit uh, open space where they have lighted the path for you to find a seat. And they start their presentation and they turn off all the lights. And the darkness is so palpable in the room that you can have your eyes wide open and your hand can be right in front of your face and you don't even know it's there. It is that, that much of a vacuum of light. There's no outside light there in that moment. And then all of a sudden, the reason why the majestic caverns have been renamed majestic is because they turn on the lights. And because lights have been brought in from the outside, 10 stories of stalagmites and stalactites and everything else is there before your, your face in 100 yards of expansive glory opens before you. But the only reason why we could see the glory is because light had been brought in from the outside. And that's the glory of what we're seeing in Colossians chapter one is that God has flipped the switch for every one of us who's in Christ. And we've seen this vantage point on why we exist, on why he exists. And it's glorious, it's majestic, it's, it's spellbounding. Your neighbors and your friends now have a light to that behold, that, that wonderful message to behold. And it's you and me in their neighborhoods and you and me in the cubicles beside them. And I hope the Live Sense series has brightened that light in our community so that they might behold the wonder and the majesty of who Jesus is. But think about the dark crevices out there in this cave called humanity where no light has been brought in from the outside. That's why Paul says he's a pioneer missionary to bring the gospel light into the darkest places that have yet to have access. You see, Birmingham has access to behold the majesty in you and me and churches and Bibles that, that are on our shelves, right? But there are 3,100 people groups, it's estimated, that have yet to behold the majesty. They have yet to have enough light brought in from the outside so that they can behold the wonder of all that God is up to in Christ. That's nearly three billion people on our planet 
who remain in the dark. And the world, 1 Corinthians 1 says, through its wisdom will not come to know God. This means that if, if light, meaning that the message of Jesus Christ doesn't come to their ears, the door of heaven remains closed to their hands. You see, to honor anything else as a means to get to heaven, like uh, another religion or a man-made attempt to, to work his way to achieve the favor of God, to, to honor that, God would be dishonoring the achievement and worth of his son on the cross. And that is unthinkable to God and it should be unthinkable to us. The wealth is found in one place. God's yes is found in one place in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the only hope for the world. And God desires for all the nations to get in on his glory. So Brook Hills, I just ask you, as we are thinking about global offering and fueling God's gospel, getting to the hardest to reach places on the planet, I ask you, where are the Pauls among us? Where are those who are thinking and praying about stewarding their gifts and stewarding their ambitions to take the gospel to those whom have yet to hear it, just like Paul? Friends, the pioneering work of missions is not finished. Now it looks different than it did in Paul's day. Paul was an itinerant evangelist going around to different places and sharing the gospel because they shared the same language. But now when you sign up to be a Paul, you've got to learn the language and you've got to help people see the glory of Christ in their language. That's what it means for Christ to be among them and declared among them. That's how the hope of glory will interrupt their rebellion by us venturing into their darkness and showing them the light of Christ. So where are the Pauls? Are they in your crib right now? Is that shaping your prayers for your kids? Are they in our children's ministry? Are they in our youth? Are they in our college ministry? Global offering and what we're gonna give ourselves to fuels our finding of Pauls among us by giving them a discounted fare to get overseas so that God's work through them and their ambitions for him might expand to the degree of his heart to get the nations the good news of Christ. You see, this vantage point changes what we value in life and death. And some of us might need to be Paul's in this room. I just got back from a meeting in Washington, D.C., where we were with global leaders from all over the world, and they are in these strategic cities stewarding their, their gifts of, of fitness and their experience in that industry and, and technology and farming and, and uh, you, you name it. There's a myriad of ways where Christians are engaging unreached peoples in strategic cities for the sake of the gospel by just transferring their job skills overseas and using their business mind to advance the kingdom, not just their own agenda. Because why? A vantage point of life intersected with how they think about their own life and their own resources and how they want to be uh, used before they die for the advancement of his kingdom. And God desires this wealth of knowledge, friends, to, to not just be known in kind of a mathematical way, two plus two equals four, but he wants to drive home the dimensions of this wealth. So look what he does. There are three dimensions here where he unpacks this wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in us. One is their hope's words, the gospel message. Verse 28, Paul says that we proclaim him. We don't add to him. We don't take away. There's no need to do either. 
This message has teeth, warning that you should stay in him if you've heard about him, teaching about the glories of him because there's no hope found in anyone else. But notice, Paul, the pioneer missionary, wants to present the church, what? Mature in Christ. So he's teaching them, warning them to stay in Christ. He wants the gospel to go long to all the unreached crevices of that cave. And he also wants that work to be sustained in its longevity. And so that's why as we steward the funding that you give through Global Offering, we are, are bent on getting the gospel to the places where it hasn't gotten yet. But we're also bent on that work being sustained. And so we invest in global leadership development, global pastoral development in Vietnam, in Malaysia, in Southeast Asia, in, in uh, the Middle East, in Turkey, and in the UAE. We're involved in helping pastors mature in the word so they can shepherd people to that glorious reunion when they will meet Christ. So Brook Hills, there on your outline, global offering is fueling a glorious reunion between Christ and his bride comprised of all peoples. Imagine, just fast forward a little bit in human history to that day when we witness all the peoples giving glory to Jesus and their story is recounted before us and we see all the twists and turns of providence to get them to recognize the glory of Jesus, to embrace the wealth of Jesus and we get to witness the whole story. And, it, and I think... Their pastors and their leaders, like in Vietnam, are going to be front and center, like a, a bridal party is to the bride and groom. And they're going to witness, because they had teeth in their endurance, they're going to witness that embrace. And it's going to be sweet to them, because their tears and their longing was to, to shepherd the church until that final consummation when they are back with Jesus. But notice, I think we're going to be in the audience in some of those places, because global offering is fueling that pastor's development and was behind the scenes. He'll never know your name, but oh, how sweet it will be to have a part in that reunion. How sweet it will be. Imagine that day. That's what motivates us. That's what this diaconal body called the global ministry team stewards our funds toward in the global offering is that sweet unimaginable reward of watching the church of Jesus Christ from all every people group on the planet be embraced by him forever and ever the next bullet there is hope's window so hope's wealth right hope's words hope's window was Paul's sufferings Paul's sufferings showcase the trophy for all to see so if something's heard in the word something seen in the sufferings of those who get the gospel to the front lines of where it hasn't been before. And Paul says something shocking, really, that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, it's been clear in this passage, Christ's afflictions are not lacking anything before God. You will be holy and blameless and faultless before him because of his reconciling work on the cross. But what they are lacking on earth is that they haven't been presented to all the world and the church has not been established among the nations. You see, Paul's suffering functions as a window through which the nations can behold Jesus' work. Every time he said, ow, right? He says it's in his flesh. He's hurting, he's straining, he's struggling, he's agonizing to get the gospel to the peoples. 
But the whole point of all that struggle is so that they would look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. It's on repeat. Through Paul's suffering, Jesus is the prize that he brings to the nations. So when he says, ow, all of the intention is for the nations to say, wow, look at God's work in a reconciling Christ for the world. Friends, it, it costs, there are costs hardwired into our global mission. It costs to give the nations the gospel. It costs some of you Thanksgiving meal with your family. It costs to give the nations the gospel, but it costs more not to. The costs here, Paul says in 2, 1 through 4, actually forge unity among the people of God and forge a, a different dimension for them to enjoy the wealth of all that they have in Christ Jesus. Think of all the costs that we will give toward global offering this year as, as increasing the nation's capacity to see the weight and worth of Jesus Christ for them. So even as we give during our gatherings and we come up front, we are, we are accenting our worship with this. It's glorious. It's weighty enough that we're going to sacrifice to get this good news to the nations. So Brook Hills, the deeper we dig, the deeper the nations delve into this treasure of who Jesus Christ is for them. Lastly, hope's welcome, and then we'll be done. Hope's welcome is Christ among the nations in all the local churches that are established through gospel preaching. This is why Paul said he was a servant of the gospel so that it would create a gospel people, and he's a servant of the church. It's the same unified uh, purpose for his mission. And it's the same reason why we give toward gospel advancement in ways that function to fuel church planting among the nations. But this is the, the felt reality among the nations. If they heard the gospel in the hope of the words that were proclaimed to them, if they saw the gospel in the reenactment of Paul's sufferings that pointed them to Jesus' sufferings, this is the welcome map for the nations to come on in. This is, this is the functional reality where they get to see reconciliation play out in the everyday rhythms of life for a, a local congregation among them. You see, something computes with the human soul when not only they hear the audible gospel that God is a reconciler, you can be reconciled to him. Something commute, computes to the human soul when they see that dynamic playing out among us and we begin reconciling and forgiving one another for faults that have come toward us because that's odd. That stands out in a world full of judgment and criticalness and suspicion, right? That's what churches do among the nations. Churches embody the glorious new story that God is writing into human history through the, the resurrected Christ. Friends, this vantage point, I hope you see. I hope you can't unsee it. God's delight is to, to bring the worthwhileness of his son into every nook and cranny of creation. God's delight is to overwhelm the world with the wealth of all that he is for us in Jesus Christ. And we get to fuel that vision. What a sacred work to be all in for all nations, to get in on the wonder of the person of Christ. So how will that alter, that vision alter what you value in life and what you value in death, church?